This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of rotator cuff tears from the shoulder and elbow section on orthobullets.com. Impingement and rotator cuff disease are a continuum of disease, including subacromial impingement, subcoracoid impingement, calcific tendonitis, rotator cuff arthropathy, and rotator cuff tears, which is what this episode will focus on. As far as the epidemiology of rotator cuff tears, in patients over the age of 60, 28% have a full thickness rotator cuff tear. In patients over the age of 70, 65% have a full thickness rotator cuff tear. Risk factors for rotator cuff tears include age, smoking, hypercholesterolemia, and a family history. With respect to pathophysiology of rotator cuff tears, mechanisms of tear include chronic degenerative tears, chronic impingement, acute avulsion injuries, and iatrogenic injuries. Chronic degenerative tears, where the intrinsic degeneration is the primary etiology, are usually seen in older patients and usually involves the sit muscles or the supraspinatus, infraspinatus, and teres minor, but may extend anteriorly to involve the superior margin of the subscapularis tendon in larger tears. Chronic impingement typically starts on the bursal surface or within the tendon. As far as acute avulsion injuries, Acute subscapularis tears are seen in younger patients following a fall. Acute sit tears are seen in patients over 40 years old with a shoulder dislocation. As far as acute avulsion injuries, acute subscapularis tears are seen in younger patients following a fall. Acute sit tears are seen in patients over 40 years old with a shoulder dislocation. And remember that full thickness rotator cuff tears need to be repaired in throwing athletes. Iatrogenic injuries are usually due to failure of surgical repair. They are often seen in repair failure of the subscapularis tendon following open anterior shoulder surgery. Associated conditions with rotator cuff tears include AC joint pathology, proximal biceps subluxation, proximal biceps tendonitis, and internal impingement, which is seen in overhead throwing athletes and is associated with partial thickness rotator cuff tears. Remember the deceleration phase of throwing leads to tensile forces and potential for rotator cuff tears. With respect to prognosis, 50% of asymptomatic tears become symptomatic in 2 to 3 years, and 50% of symptomatic full thickness tears progress at 2 years, and bigger tears progress faster. Now, let's talk about some relevant anatomy, and specifically, we'll discuss rotator cuff function, the rotator cuff footprint, rotator cuff histologic areas, rotator cuff blood supply, and certain anatomic features associated with the rotator cuff. With respect to rotator cuff function, the primary function of the rotator cuff is to provide dynamic stability by balancing the force couples about the glenohumeral joint in both the coronal and transverse plane. In the coronal plane, the inferior rotator cuff, that is the infraspinatus, teres minor, and subscapularis, function to balance the superior moment created by the deltoid. In the transverse plane, the anterior cuff, that is the subscapularis, functions to balance the posterior moment created by the posterior cuff, that is the infraspinatus and teres minor. This maintains a stable fulcrum for glenohumeral motion. The goal of treatment in rotator cuff tears is to restore this equilibrium in all planes. With respect to the rotator cuff footprint, the supraspinatus inserts on the anterosuperior aspect of the greater tuberosity. As far as the medial lateral width at insertion, the supraspinatus is 12.7 millimeters, which covers the superior facet of the greater tuberosity. And remember, a 6 to 7 millimeter tear corresponds to a 50% partial thickness tear. The medial lateral width of the infraspinatus is 13.4 millimeters. 
The subscapularis is 17.9 millimeters, and the teres minor is 13.9 millimeters. The distance between the articular cartilage to the medial footprint of the rotator cuff is 1.6 to 1.9 millimeters. The AP dimension of the footprint is 20 millimeters, which corresponds to the insertion of the supraspinatus and anterior infraspinatus. With respect to the rotator cuff histologic areas, there are five layers. This is important because the articular side has only half the strength of the bursal side, which explains why most tears are articular-sided. This is an important point to remember, so I'll say it again. The articular side of the rotator cuff has only half the strength of the bursal side, which explains why most tears are articular-sided. Now, let's go through the five layers. Layer 1 is the most superficial layer and is 1 millimeter thick and is composed of fibers from the coracohumeral ligament which extend posteriorly and obliquely. Layer 2 is composed of densely packed fibers that are parallel to the long axis of the tendon and is roughly 3 to 5 millimeters in thickness. Layer 3 is made up of smaller, loosely organized bundles of collagen at a 45 degree angle to the long axis of the tendon and this is 3 millimeters thick. Layer 4 is made up of loose connective tissue as well as thick collagen bands and this merges with fibers from the coracohumeral ligament. And layer 5 is the shoulder capsule which is 2 millimeters thick. Moving on to the rotator cuff blood supply, this is largely from the subscapular, suprascapular and humeral circumflex arteries with branching within layer 2 and layer 3. The bursal side is more vascular than the articular side which is hypovascular and the zone of critical hypovascularity is adjacent to the most lateral portion of the supraspinatus insertion. Anatomic features associated with the rotator cuff include the rotator interval, rotator crescent, and the rotator cable. The rotator interval includes the capsule, the superior glenohumeral ligament, and the coracohumeral ligament that bridge the gap between the supraspinatus and the subscapularis. The rotator crescent is a thin, crescent-shaped sheet of rotator cuff comprising the distal portions of the supraspinatus and the infraspinatus insertions. The rotator cable is a thick bundle of fibers found at the avascular zone of the coracohumeral ligament running perpendicular to the supraspinatus fibers and spanning the insertions of the supra and infraspinatus tendons. As far as classification of rotator cuff tears, there's an anatomic classification, a classification based on cuff tear size, the Elman classification of partial thickness rotator cuff tears, the Goutalier cuff atrophy classification, and a classification based on cuff tear shape. The anatomic classification is broken down into two major types, tears of the sit muscles or the supraspinatus, infraspinatus, and teres minor, and the second type is subscapularis tears. Supraspinatus, infraspinatus, and teres minor tears make up the majority of tears. This is associated with subacromial impingement, and the mechanism is often a degenerative tear in an older patient or a shoulder dislocation in patients greater than 40 years old. With respect to subscapularis tears, new evidence suggests higher prevalence than previously thought. This is associated with subcoracoid impingement, and the mechanism is often an acute avulsion in a younger patient with a hyperabduction slash external rotation injury or an iatrogenic injury due to failure of repair. Moving on to the classification based on cuff tear size, there are four major types, small, medium, large, and massive. Small tears are between 0 to 1 centimeter. Medium tears are between 1 to 3 centimeters. Large tears are between 3 to 5 centimeters. And massive tears are greater than 5 centimeters, which involves multiple tendons. In the European classification, a massive tear is defined as involving two or more tendons. 
The Elman classification of partial thickness rotator cuff tears is divided into three grades and three subgrades based on location. Grade 1 partial tears are less than 3 mm or less than 25% thickness. Grade 2 partial tears are 3 to 6 mm or 25 to 50% thickness. Grade 3 partial tears are greater than 6 mm or greater than 50% thickness. The three subgrades based on location are A, B, and C. A is articular sided, B is bursal sided, and C is intratendinous. Moving on to the cuff atrophy or gutalier classification, this is broken down into five types. Type 0 is normal, type 1 has some fatty streaks, type 2 has more muscle than fat, type 3 has equal amounts fat and muscle, and type 4 has more fat than muscle. Finally, the classification based on cuff tear shape has four major types, crescent-shaped tears, U-shaped tears, L-shaped tears, as well as massive and immobile tears. Crescent tears usually do not retract medially, are quite mobile in the medial to lateral direction, and can be repaired directly to bone with minimal tension. U-shaped tears have similar shape to crescent tears, but extend further medially with the apex adjacent or medial to the rim of the glenoid. U-shaped tears must be repaired side to side using margin convergence first to avoid overwhelming tensile stress in the middle of the rotator cuff repair margin. L-shaped tears are similar to U-shaped tears, except one of the leaves is more mobile than the other. Use margin convergence in the repair of L-shaped tears. Finally, massive and immobile tears may be U-shaped or longitudinal. These are difficult to repair and often requires an interval slide. As far as the presentation of rotator cuff tears, symptoms largely include pain and weakness. Pain is typically insidious in onset and exacerbated by overhead activities. There's also pain located in the deltoid region, and there may be night pain, which is a poor indicator for non-operative management. And remember, patients can have acute pain and weakness with a traumatic tear. Weakness in rotator cuff tears typically involves loss of active range of motion with greater or intact passive range of motion. Now, let's do a quick overview of the physical exam of the rotator cuff. The supraspinatus may exhibit weakness to resisted elevation in the Job position, which is basically 90 degrees of abduction with internal rotation. Other special tests for supraspinatus tears include the drop arm test and pain with the Job test. On infraspinatus testing, you may find external rotation weakness at 0 degrees of abduction. As far as special tests of the infraspinatus, the external rotation lag sign is the one to know. An infraspinatus tear will often manifest on exam by the external rotation lag sign in an externally rotated position at the shoulder, and the patient is unable to actively maintain this position after release. As far as Terry's minor testing, this may reveal external rotation weakness at 90 degrees of abduction and 90 degrees of external rotation. Special tests include the hornblower sign, and for this test, support the patient's arm abducted to 90 degrees in the scapular plane with the elbow flexed to 90 degrees then ask the patient to rotate the arm externally at 90 degrees against resistance. A positive sign is indicated by the inability to maintain the externally rotated position and the arm drops back to neutral position. Finally, subscapularis testing may show internal rotation weakness at zero degrees of abduction. Special tests that may reveal a subscapularis tear include excessive passive external rotation, the belly press test, the lift-off sign, and an internal rotation lag sign. With respect to imaging of rotator cuff tears, radiographic views should include a true AP, an AP in internal-slash-external rotation, an axillary view, and an outlet view to assess the acromion. Findings may include calcific tendinitis, 
calcification in the corcohumeral ligament, and cystic changes in the greater tuberosity. Other findings may include proximal migration of the humerus seen with chronic rotator cuff tears, which are typically associated with an acromiohumeral interval of less than 7 millimeters, and you may also notice a type 3 or hooked acromion. An arthrogram is not commonly used in isolation, but is used when the MRI is contraindicated. As far as findings, a rotator cuff tear is present if dye leaks from the glenohumeral joint into the subacromial joint. Keep in mind that an MR arthrogram may improve sensitivity and specificity. MRI is the diagnostic standard for rotator cuff pathology. Obtain one when suspicion for pain or weakness is attributable to a rotator cuff tear. As far as findings, it's important to evaluate muscle quality, which includes size, shape, and degree of retraction of the tear, as well as degree of muscle fatty atrophy, which is best seen on sagittal images. Medial biceps tendon subluxation is indicative of a subscapularis tear. A cyst in the humeral head on MRI is seen in almost all patients with chronic rotator cuff tears. The tangent sign is failure of the supraspinatus to cross a line drawn between the superior borders of the scapular spine and coracoid process on a sagittal MRI slice. With respect to sensitivity and specificity, in asymptomatic patients 60 years and older, 55% will have a rotator cuff tear. Ultrasound is indicated for suspicion of rotator cuff pathology and need for dynamic examination. Advantages of ultrasound include that it allows for dynamic testing, it's inexpensive, it's readily available at most centers, and it's helpful to confirm intraarticular injections. Disadvantages include that it's highly user-dependent and there is limited ability to evaluate other intraarticular pathology. With respect to sensitivity slash specificity, there is similar sensitivity, specificity, and overall accuracy for diagnosis of rotator cuff disease as compared to MRI. 23% of asymptomatic patients had a rotator cuff tear on ultrasound in one series. Treatment of rotator cuff tears can be operative or non-operative. Treatment considerations include the activity and age of the patient, mechanism of the tear, meaning whether it's a degenerative or a traumatic avulsion, characteristics of the tear like size, depth, retraction, and muscle atrophy are taken into consideration, partial thickness tears versus complete tears, articular-sided or pasta lesions versus bursal-sided lesions, and remember that bursal-sided tears are treated more aggressively. Non-operative management includes physical therapy, NSAIDs, and subacromial corticosteroid injections. Non-operative management is the first line of treatment for most tears, and partial tears often can be managed with therapy. Non-operative management will include avoidance of overhead activities, physical therapy with aggressive rotator cuff and scapular stabilizer strengthening over a 3-6 to six month treatment course, and subacromial injections can be done if impingement is thought to be a major cause of symptoms. Operative options include subacromial decompression and rotator cuff debridement alone, rotator cuff repair, whether arthroscopic or mini-open, tendon transfer, and reverse total shoulder arthroplasty. Subacromial decompression and rotator cuff debridement alone is indicated for select patients with a low-grade partial articular-sided rotator cuff tear. Rotator cuff repair, whether arthroscopic or mini-open, is indicated for acute full-thickness tears, bursal-sided tears greater than 3 millimeters or greater than 25% in depth. In these cases, you will release the remaining tendon and debride the degenerative tissue. Partial articular-sided tears greater than 50% can be treated with tear completion and repair, while partial articular-sided tears less than 50% can be treated with debridement alone. 
pasta lesions with greater than 7 millimeters of an exposed bony footprint between the articular surface and intact tendon represents a significant or greater than 50% cuff tear. Remember, you must have at least 25% healthy bursal-sided tissue for a rotator cuff repair. Cuff repairs are also indicated for younger patients for acute traumatic tears. Remember to do an inside to repair in these patients and leave bursal-sided tissue intact. Older patients with degenerative tears typically undergo tendon release, debridement of degenerative tissue, and repair. Postoperatively, after a rotator cuff tear, remember that the rate-limiting step for recovery is biologic healing of the rotator cuff tendon to the greater tuberosity, which is believed to take 8 to 12 weeks. Peribursal tissue and holes drilled in the greater tuberosity are a major source of vascularity to the repaired rotator cuff. Remember that vascularity can increase with exercise. Post-op patients should have limited passive range of motion and no active range of motion. As far as outcomes, workers' compensation patients report the worst outcomes with respect to higher post-op disability and lower patient satisfaction. Another operative option is a tendon transfer, which is indicated for massive cuff tears. Techniques include a pectoralis major transfer and a latissimus dorsi transfer, which is best for irreparable posterosuperior tears with an intact subscapularis. A reverse total shoulder arthroplasty is indicated for a massive cuff tear with glenohumeral arthritis and an intact deltoid. Now, let's talk about some of these surgical techniques in a bit more detail. A mini open rotator cuff repair once was the gold standard, but has been largely replaced by arthroscopic techniques. As far as the approach, a small horizontal variant of a shoulder lateral or deltoid splitting approach is carried out. The advantages of a mini-open approach over an open approach is that there is decreased risk of deltoid avulsion and there is faster rehabilitation as you do not need to protect the deltoid repair. With a mini-open rotator cuff repair, you may begin passive range of motion immediately to prevent adhesive capsulitis, and most surgeons will wait approximately six weeks before initiating active range of motion. With respect to arthroscopic rotator cuff repair, as far as advantages, studies now show equivalent results to open or mini-open repair. Important concepts to keep in mind include margin convergence, anterior interval slide, posterior interval slide, subscapularis repair, long head of the biceps repair, footprint restoration, and coracoacromial ligament release. Margin convergence has been shown to decrease strain on the lateral margin in U-shaped tears. An anterior interval slide releases the supraspinatus from the rotator interval, effectively incising the coracohumeral ligament. This increases the mobility of the supraspinatus and allows it to be fixed to the lateral footprint. A posterior interval slide releases the supraspinatus from the infraspinatus. This further increases the mobility of the supraspinatus and allows it to be fixed to the lateral footprint. Then repair the supraspinatus to the infraspinatus with margin convergence. With respect to subscapularis repair, Although arthroscopic repair is technically challenging, new studies show superior outcomes as far as motion and pain compared to open repair. In a subscapularis repair, you will stabilize the biceps tendon with a tenodesis, and remember that the superolateral margin of the subscapularis is identified by the quote comma sign, which is the superior glenohumeral and coracohumeral ligaments attaching to the subscapularis tendon. With respect to a long head biceps tendon repair, most studies show negligible difference between tenotomy versus tenodesis after concurrent rotator cuff repair. As far as footprint restoration, it's hypothesized that a larger footprint will improve healing and the mechanical strength of the rotator cuff repair.
double row suture techniques, that is mattress sutures in the medial row and then simple sutures in the lateral row, have been shown to create a more anatomic repair of the footprint. Remember, there is a lower retear rate of a double row repair compared with a single row. However, there is no difference in functional score, pain score, and time to healing compared to a single row. Remember that the addition of a trough in the greater tuberosity to allow a tendon to cancellous bone interface as opposed to a tendon to cortical bone interface has not been shown to increase repair strength in animal models. Finally, with respect to cortical acromial ligament release, release leads to an increased anterior-slash-inferior translation of the glenohumeral joint. Finally, tendon transfer is indicated for massive and irreparable rotator cuff tears. A pectoralis major transfer is indicated in chronic subscapularis tears. Transferring the pectoralis major under the conjoined tendon more closely replicates the vector forces of the native subscapularis. Pec major transfers require four to six weeks of rigid immobilization postoperatively. Latissimus dorsi transfers are indicated in large supraspinatus and infraspinatus tears. The best candidate is a young laborer. With this option, you will attach the latissimus dorsi to the cuff muscles, subscapularis, and the greater trochanter. Post-op, you will brace immobilized for six weeks in 45 degrees of abduction and 30 degrees of external rotation. Nerves at risk include the radial nerve, which runs along the anterior surface of the latissimus dorsi, approximately 3 centimeters medial to the humeral insertion. Remember, this is at risk during tenotomy. Another nerve at risk is the posterior branch of the axillary nerve, which runs in the deep fascia of the posterior deltoid. This is at risk during passage of the tendon deep to the deltoid to the subacromial space. As far as biologic and synthetic graft reconstruction, there is some recent evidence of improved outcomes with the use of xenograft, allograft, or synthetic patches for massive cuff tears. However, there are limited human and long-term studies. Xenografts are from bovine dermis or intestine, However, keep in mind there is mixed functional outcomes and graft incorporation. Allograft from human skin or muscular fascia can be used and there is some evidence of good function and survival in the short term. As far as synthetics, there is concern for foreign body reaction and there have also been mixed functional results. Finally, a lateral acromionectomy has historic significance only. It's contraindicated due to a high complication rate. Now, let's finish this review session by talking about some surgical complications of rotator cuff surgery, which include recurrence-slash-repair failure, deltoid detachment, acromioclavicular pain, axillary nerve injury, suprascapular nerve injury, infection, stiffness, and pneumothorax. As far as recurrence-slash-repair failure, the most common cause of failed rotator cuff repair is failure of cuff tissue to heal, resulting in suture pullout from the repaired tissue. Patient risk factors for repair failure include patient age greater than 65 years old, which is a risk factor for non-healing of rotator cuff repairs and subsequent failure. Other risk factors include large tear size, which is defined as greater than 5 centimeters, muscle atrophy, diabetes, smokers, tear retraction medial to the glenoid, poor compliance with the post-op protocol, and keep in mind that there have been no differences in clinical outcomes or healing with early versus delayed motion protocols. Other risk factors of recurrence-slash-repair failure include multiple tendons involved and concomitant AC and or biceps procedures performed at the time of repair. As far as treatment for recurrence-slash-repair failure, revision rotator cuff repair versus a reverse total shoulder arthroplasty are options. Variables to consider when choosing revision rotator cuff repair versus reverse total shoulder arthroplasty includes patient age, and remember older age favors a reverse total shoulder arthroplasty, 
Other variables to consider include etiology of the re-tear, quality of the tissue slash MRI findings, and static proximal humeral migration, which favors reverse total shoulder arthroplasty. Deltoid detachment is a complication seen with an open rotator cuff repair approach. Suprascapular nerve injury may occur with aggressive mobilization of the supraspinatus during repair. Infection has a less than 1% incidence, and usually common skin flora include staph aureus, strep, and P. acnes. Propionobacterium acnes is the most commonly implicated organism in delayed or indolent cases. Stiffness is another potential complication. Keep in mind that physical therapy and guided early range of motion exercises are not shown to reduce stiffness one year postoperatively. Finally, pneumothorax can be a complication of regional anesthesia, that is interscalene or supraclavicular block, or the arthroscopy itself. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic has been tested on past exams. The first question reads, During arthroscopic evaluation of a partial thickness articular-sided supraspinatus tendon tear, the medial to lateral width of the tear is noted to be 6 millimeters. This represents what percent partial thickness tear? And the choices are 1, 10%, 2, 25%, 3, 50%, 4, 75%, and 5, 90%. The correct answer to this question is 3, 50%. So partial thickness rotator cuff tears can be bursal-sided, articular-sided, and or intratendinous. Management of partial thickness tears requires an understanding of the native anatomy. Dugas and Associates and Ruotolo and Associates studied cadaveric specimens and reported the medial to lateral width of the supraspinatus tendon averages 12.1 to 12.7 millimeters. Therefore, a 6 to 7 millimeter tear represents approximately a 50% tear of the supraspinatus tendon. Most authors agreed that tears representing greater than 50% of the medial to lateral width of the supraspinatus tendon should be repaired. Moving on to the next question. A 51-year-old woman with shoulder pain responds transiently to a subacromial injection and physical therapy exercise program. When her symptoms recur, an arthroscopic subacromial decompression is recommended. During the surgery, a partial thickness articular-sided supraspinatus tear is noted. The supraspinatus footprint is exposed for 3 millimeters from the articular margin. The remaining intraarticular structures are normal. Inspection from the bursal surface reveals the tendon to be intact. What is the most appropriate course of management? And the choices are 1. Completion of the tear from the bursal surface and rotator cuff repair. 2. Arthroscopic long head of the biceps tenotomy. 3. Arthroscopic glenohumeral synovectomy. 4. Arthroscopic tendon debridement and subacromial decompression. And 5. Transtendinous rotator cuff repair. The correct answer to this question is 4. Arthroscopic tendon debridement and subacromial decompression. So the patient has a partial articular supraspinatus tendon avulsion or pasta lesion. Outcome studies suggest that articular sided tears of this magnitude do well with arthroscopic decompression and debridement alone. Determination of lesion thickness is important in recommending treatment and may be done with a variety of methods. Tears that involve exposure of less than 5 millimeters of the rotator cuff footprint likely measure less than half of the tendon thickness. In the absence of other associated pathology, bicipital tenotomy or synovectomy would be unnecessary. 
completion of the tear or transtendinous repair would be considered for lesions of greater than 50% thickness. Moving on to the next question. A 72-year-old woman was evaluated with an MRI scan for a shoulder mass that was confirmed to be a lipoma. Additional MRI findings included a 7-millimeter full-thickness tear of the supraspinatus tendon. Therefore, the patient was referred by her internist for evaluation and management of the rotator cuff tear. The patient reports mild stiffness with certain motion but denies any limitations in her functional capacity. Examination reveals a slight decrease in internal rotation and mild weakness with resisted abduction of the shoulder. What is the most appropriate management? And the choices are 1. Observation 2. Arthroscopic rotator cuff debridement 3. Arthroscopic rotator cuff repair with acromioplasty 4. Arthroscopic biceps tendon tenotomy and 5. Open rotator cuff repair with bone tunnels. The correct answer to this question is 1. Observation. So in patients older than 60 years, over 30% of asymptomatic shoulders show MRI findings of full thickness rotator cuff tears. Therefore, without significant symptoms, surgical treatment is not warranted. Moving on to the next question. Which of the following scenarios is most likely to be amenable to a complete repair of a massive rotator cuff tear? And the choices are 1. 42-year-old woman with rheumatoid arthritis. 2. 45-year-old man with a tear associated with an anterior shoulder dislocation. 3. 49-year-old man who underwent repair of an ipsilateral rotator cuff three years ago. 4. 56-year-old male laborer with superior humeral migration on radiographs and 5, 59-year-old woman with muscular atrophy noted in the supraspinatus fossa. So the correct answer to this question is 2, 45-year-old man with a tear associated with an anterior shoulder dislocation. So whereas a rotator cuff tear associated with an acute anterior dislocation in a 45-year-old patient may be massive, its acute nature typically means that significant retraction and atrophy of the musculature has not occurred. Therefore, repair is often complete and tension-free. A massive tear associated with rheumatoid arthritis is likely one of chronic attrition with poor tendon tissue because of the underlying disease and chronic corticosteroid use. Repairs of massive chronic rotator cuff tears have been reported to have a 50% rate of re-tear, and this rate would be expected to be higher in the revision setting and with evident supraspinatus atrophy on physical examination. Superior humeral migration on static upright radiographs indicates loss of the superior glenoid rim, leading to rotator cuff tear arthropathy. Moving on to the next question. What preoperative patient factor has been shown to most closely correlate with poor results after a latissimus dorsi transfer for an irreparable rotator cuff tear? And the choices are 1. Age of younger than 70 years. 2. Positive liftoff test. 3. Previous shoulder surgery. 4. Loss of passive external rotation, and 5. Male gender. Correct answer to this question is 2. Positive liftoff test. So patients with a positive liftoff test have a tear of the subscapularis tendon. Patients with a subscapularis tendon tear did much worse than other patients in the studies by Gerber and Associates and Erlenbusch and Associates. Latissimus dorsi muscle transfer during the primary surgery when a complete rotator cuff repair could not be performed results in a better outcome than a muscle transfer done as a second surgery, but other prior surgery was not shown to affect transfer results. Ionati and associates found poor results in patients who were female or had external rotation and forward flexion weakness.
Moving on to the next question. A 56-year-old woman undergoes an arthroscopic rotator cuff repair for a two-tendon retracted tear that is supraspinatus and infraspinatus, requiring the use of four suture anchors placed in a double-row technique. At her one-month follow-up visit, what is the appropriate recommendation for her continued rehabilitation program? And the choices are 1. Initiate isometric external rotation strengthening and continue passive range of motion. 2. Initiate eccentric supraspinatus strengthening and continue passive range of motion. 3. Initiate light resistance training to minimize atrophy and continue passive range of motion. 4. Continue passive range of motion and initiate concentric deltoid strengthening. And 5. Continue passive range of motion with no active strengthening of the shoulder muscles. So the correct answer to this question is 5. Continue passive range of motion with no active strengthening of the shoulder muscles. So regardless of the technique of rotator cuff repair, the biology of tendon healing remains the same. Therefore, the repaired muscle tendon or tendons must be protected from stress for a minimum of 6 weeks and more likely 8 weeks in a large two-tendon tear such as this patient had repaired. Therefore, at the one-month follow-up visit, the patient should continue strict passive motion exercises and should perform no strengthening activities. Deltoid strengthening cannot be isolated from rotator cuff strengthening, therefore deltoid strengthening is inappropriate as well. Because the infraspinatus is the primary shoulder external rotator, it should not be strengthened for 6-8 to eight weeks. Supraspinatus strengthening at this time frame would likely ensure its disruption and result in failure of the surgery. Any resistance training at one month from surgery would likely result in tendon failure at the tendon-bone interface. The obligatory need to protect the muscles during healing will predictably result in atrophy, but it's easier to strengthen healed muscles than it is to strengthen muscle-slash-tendon units that have failed to heal. Moving on to the next question. Which of the following postoperative rehabilitation techniques causes minimal rotator cuff muscle activation? And the choices are 1. Active forward flexion. 2. Passive forward flexion. 3. Active assisted forward flexion. 4. Overhead pulley-assisted passive forward flexion. And 5. Isometric strengthening. The correct answer to this question is 2. Passive forward flexion. So electromyography or EMG studies have shown that the rotator cuff is least active with passive range of motion, and hence this is allowed early in most postoperative rotator cuff rehabilitation protocols. Active forward flexion, active assisted motion, and isometric strengthening all cause activation of the rotator cuff muscles as measured by EMG and therefore should be introduced later in rehabilitation when the repair can withstand these forces. Whereas some authors have felt that pulley-assisted range of motion exercises are safe, EMG analysis has demonstrated that these exercises do cause activation of the rotator cuff musculature and probably should be avoided early in the rehabilitation protocol. Moving on to the next question. A 52-year-old man who dislocated his dominant shoulder has it reduced in the emergency department and he is placed in a sling. At his 5-day follow-up evaluation, he reports that this is his first shoulder dislocation and that the pain is mostly gone, but he notes difficulty using his arm overhead and away from his body. Examination reveals minimal pain with passive range of motion, a positive apprehension and relocation test, and 3 out of 5 strength with the empty can test and external rotation at the side compared with 5 out of 5 with those tests on the contralateral side. Cutaneous sensation over the lateral aspect of the shoulder is intact. Radiographs show the glenohumeral joint is reduced with no fractures or degenerative changes. What is the next step in management? And the choices are 1. CT of the shoulder, 
2 MRI of the shoulder, 3 application of a sling for 6 weeks, 4 surgery for diagnostic shoulder arthroscopy, and 5 physical therapy to work on range of motion and strengthening. So the correct answer to this question is 2 MRI of the shoulder. So obtaining an MRI scan to evaluate for a rotator cuff tear is a reasonable next step. The patient sustained a first-time shoulder dislocation, and given his age and clinical presentation, it's likely that he injured the rotator cuff. Large, full-thickness rotator cuff tears following dislocation in young individuals warrants early surgical intervention. Delay of surgical repair for large, full-thickness tears may lead to irreversible changes, including atrophy and retraction of the tendon. As a result, clinical outcome may be compromised. CT will demonstrate bony changes, but it's not effective as MRI for soft tissue pathology. While in the short term, a sling for comfort might be helpful, six weeks of immobilization is unnecessary because recurrent instability is rarely an issue. Physical therapy can be beneficial, but could potentially delay identification of an acute rotator cuff tear. In the event the MRI does not reveal a large full-thickness rotator cuff tear, physical therapy would be an appropriate next step. There is no indication for urgent shoulder arthroscopy. Moving on to the next question. Which of the following 50-year-old patients with an irreparable rotator cuff tendon is the best candidate for an isolated latissimus dorsi transfer? And the choices are 1. Man with active elevation to 90 degrees. 2. Woman with active elevation to 45 degrees. 3. Woman with a horn blower sign that is complete absence of external rotation with abduction. 4. Man with superior escape of the humeral head. And 5. Man with full motion and a positive liftoff test. So the correct answer to this question is 1. Man with active elevation to 90 degrees. So patients with superior escape or a torn subscapularis demonstrated by a positive liftoff test will not benefit from a latissimus dorsi transfer even if combined with a pectoralis muscle transfer. In the study by Iannotti and Associates, women had poorer outcomes than men and patients with preoperative elevation below shoulder level or 90 degrees also had poorer outcomes. Patients with complete loss of external rotator function have worse function after latissimus dorsi transfer than patients with some external rotation function. Moving on to the next question. A 48-year-old man undergoes arthroscopy to repair a rotator cuff tear. During the arthroscopy, the tear is characterized and found to involve the entire supraspinatus and a majority of the infraspinatus tendon. After mobilization, the posterior rotator cuff can reach the greater tuberosity. However, the supraspinatus tendon cannot reach its insertion point at the greater tuberosity. What is the most appropriate treatment? And the choices are 1. Conversion to a latissimus dorsi muscle tendon transfer. 2. Acromioplasty and coracoacromial ligament release. 3. Reverse acromioplasty or tuberoplasty. 4. Reverse total shoulder arthroplasty. And 5. Partial repair of the rotator cuff. So if a complete rotator cuff repair is not possible, a partial rotator cuff repair should still be considered and is the appropriate treatment for this patient. In patients with an irreparable massive rotator cuff tear, acromioplasty with coracoacromial ligament release, reverse acromioplasty, and tenotomy of the biceps tendon may improve shoulder pain. If these procedures fail, then a muscle transfer procedure can also be considered in select patients. If, however, a portion of the rotator cuff can be repaired, even partial repair can balance the coronal and axial forces about the shoulder to restore the kinematics of the joint. 
Reverse total shoulder arthroplasty is not appropriate for this relatively young patient. Moving on to the next question. Biomechanical in vitro studies of double row anchor fixation of rotator cuff tears show what initial advantage over single row anchor fixation? And the choices are one, increased peak to peak elongation, two, decreased stiffness, three, higher ultimate tensile load, four, decreased contact area, and five, increased conditioning elongation. The correct answer to this question is three, higher ultimate tensile load. So biomechanical in vitro studies of double row fixation of rotator cuff tears during cyclic loading and tensile loading to failure have demonstrated that double row fixation results in a higher ultimate tensile load when compared to single row fixation. Peak-to-peak -peak elongation, stiffness, and conditioning elongation for double-row fixation were all similar to single-row fixation. These initial findings, however, may or may not lead to improved clinical outcomes. Moving on to the next question. Early failure of arthroscopic rotator cuff repair most commonly occurs by which of the following mechanisms? And the choices are 1. Anchor pullout. 2. Anchor fracture. 3. Suture rupture. 4. Knot failure and five, tissue failure. The correct answer to this question is five, tissue failure. So arthroscopic repair of the rotator cuff is becoming increasingly popular. Unfortunately, recent objective evaluations have indicated high failure rates even in patients who are clinically improved. Early failure can occur by failure of the suture anchor, suture, or not. However, the most common cause of failure is when the suture pulls through the tendon. This results in, quote, stretching of the repair that can lead to gap formation between the repaired tendon and the osseous insertion and subsequently poor tendon-to-bone healing. Moving on to the next question. If the quality of the tendon is poor at the lateral attachment of a partial articular-sided rotator cuff tear that is more than 6 millimeters of footprint exposure or greater than 50% thickness, what should the surgeon do? And the choices are 1. Use an autogenous fascial graft. 2. Use an allograft augmentation. 3. Complete the tear and then repair the tendon. 4. Perform a trans-tendon repair. And 5. Biopsy the tissue. The correct answer to this question is 3. Complete the tear and then repair the tendon. So generally, partial articular-sided rotator cuff tears are treated by either debridement or repair. The decision to repair depends on the thickness of the tear and the retraction of the undersurface of the rotator cuff, as well as the quality of the remaining tissue. More than 6 millimeters of footprint exposure suggests a 50% thickness tear. If it is poor quality, as in this case, the surgeon should complete the tear and repair the tendon, as in a small, full thickness tear. Intrasubstance tears with an intact footprint can be treated with a trans-tendon repair. Moving on to the next question. A 55-year-old man who works as a carpenter reports chronic right anterior shoulder pain and weakness. Examination reveals 90 degrees of external rotation with the arm at the side compared to 45 degrees on the left side. His lift-off examination is positive along with a positive belly press finding. An MRI scan reveals a chronic retracted atrophied subscapularis tendon. What is the most appropriate management of his shoulder pain and weakness? And the choices are 1. Shoulder fusion. 2. Arthroscopic subscapularis repair. 3. Intraarticular corticosteroid injection. 4. Open subscapularis repair. And 5. Pectoralis major transfer.
The correct answer to this question is five, pectoralis major transfer. So chronic subscapularis tendon ruptures preclude primary repair. In such instances, subcoracoid pectoralis major tendon transfers may improve function and diminish pain. The subcoracoid position of the transfer allows redirection of the pectoralis major in a direction recreating the vector of the subscapularis tendon. Shoulder fusion is a salvage procedure, and corticosteroid injection may reduce pain but will not improve function. Moving on to the next question. During treatment of rupture of the subscapularis tendon with associated biceps instability, treatment of the biceps tendon should include which of the following? And the choices are 1. Tenosynovectomy. 2. Recentering. 3. Deepening of the bicipital groove. 4. Tenodesis or tenotomy. And 5. Lysis of sheath adhesion. The correct answer to this question is 4. Tenodesis or tenotomy. So with subscapularis tendon ruptures that have biceps tendon pathology, treatment with tenodesis or tenotomy has improved clinical results. Subluxation or dislocation of the biceps tendon is common with subscapularis rupture. Dislocation of the biceps can occur either beneath the tendon, within the tendon, or extraarticularly. In all cases, the restraints to medial translations of the biceps have been disrupted. Attempts at recentering the biceps have not been successful, and clinical results appear to be improved when tenodesis or tenotomy is employed in the treatment of the unstable biceps associated with subscapularis tears. Moving on to the next question. When comparing arthroscopic and open rotator cuff repairs, which of the following tears shows a decreased recurrent tear rate in the open versus the arthroscopic group? And the choices are 1. Partial thickness tears, 2. Tears less than 1 centimeter in width, 3. Tears between 1 and 2 centimeters in width, 4. Tears greater than 3 centimeters in width, and 5. Tears showing retraction medial to the glenoid. The correct answer to this question is 4. Tears greater than 3 centimeters in width. So as a tool for rotator cuff repair, arthroscopy has afforded surgeons the ability to repair tears without causing potential morbidity to the overlying deltoid. Follow-up studies looking at functional recovery have now shown equivalent or slightly better outcomes with arthroscopic procedures versus standard open procedures. However, small tear size may serve as a better predictor of success with arthroscopic approaches. Imaging studies have shown a higher rate of tear recurrence and or failure of healing when tears greater than 3 centimeters in size are repaired arthroscopically versus a standard open approach. Moving on to the next question. A 60-year-old right-hand dominant woman fell on her outstretched arm and sustained an anterior shoulder dislocation. The shoulder is reduced in the emergency room and she is seen for follow-up one week later wearing a sling. Examination reveals that she has significant difficulty in raising her arm in forward elevation and has excessive external rotation compared to the contralateral shoulder. What is the next most appropriate step in management? And the choices are 1. MRI, 2. Electromyography, 3. Open repair of the supraspinatus, 4. Arthrography, and 5. Arthroscopic labral repair. The correct answer to this question is 1. MRI. So in patients older than age 40 years, a high suspicion of a rotator cuff tear should be kept in those patients with weakness after shoulder dislocation. Both posterior rotator cuff and subscapularis injuries have been documented. The most appropriate step in management should be MRI. If the findings are negative, suspicion of nerve injury should lead to electromyography. 
And moving on to the final question for this review session. A 52-year-old man underwent arthroscopic repair of a 1-centimeter supraspinatus tendon tear three weeks ago. He was doing well until he fell down three stairs. One week after the fall, he continues to report pain similar to his preoperative pain. An MRI scan reveals a minimally retracted 1-centimeter supraspinatus tendon tear in the same location as his original tear. Management should now consist of, and the choices are 1, continued physical therapy that focuses on stretching and advances to strengthening in 4 weeks, 2, a cortisone injection into the subacromial space, 3, revision rotator cuff repair, 4, a sling with an abduction pillow for 2 weeks followed by a stretching program, and 5, open rotator cuff debridement without repair. The correct answer to this question is 3, revision rotator cuff repair. So the patient has retorn his rotator cuff repair. This traumatic re-tear is different from a chronic tear and should be treated similar to an acute rotator cuff tear. Because the patient is younger than age 65 and has a small, single tendon tear, a revision rotator cuff repair is indicated with an expected tendon healing rate of greater than 95%. A physical therapy program is not indicated and further delay in repair compromises his functional recovery. A cortisone injection is not indicated for this repairable tendon tear. Immobilization will not allow the tendon to heal once it has retorn. A debridement procedure is not indicated on this repairable tendon tear. This procedure is indicated in painful, chronic, irreparable tendon tears. That's all for this review about rotator cuff tears. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on orthobullets.com, and in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the OrthoBullets website or mobile app while going through the topic. If you've gotten any value from the OrthoBullets podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks so much, and we'll see you all tomorrow.